This program is brought to you by Stanford on iTunes U at Stanford University. Please visit us at itunes.stanford.edu. My name is David Victor. I run the program on energy and sustainable development uh, here at the Freeman Spogli Institute. And um, I'll introduce our panelists in just a second. My perspective on energy security has more or less been summarized um, by the following quote. Uh, in 1964, Justice Potter Stewart, this is one of our Supreme Court justices, trying in a different area, trying to explain what is meant by, quote, hardcore pornography, or what is obscene, his conclusion in the decision, uh, quote, I shall not today attempt to further, uh, attempt further to define the kinds of material I understand to be embraced, but, and this is a direct quote, I know it when I see it. And um, I've always thought that energy security was a little bit like Justice Stewart's definition of hardcore pornography. You know it when you see it, or you think you know it when you see it, and you have to keep looking at the situation to figure out whether it's energy security or not. It's not necessarily a great way to make law, and it may be not a great way to make policy. And I've had a very hard time getting my head around what this means. Um, and we have in store for you today um, two panelists who spent a lot of time thinking about these kinds of issues as they relate not only to investment strategy but also to, um, to company uh, policy. Um, and we purposely designed this panel so we have perspectives from different kinds of industries because energy security really uh, varies by where you are, by the energy system, and by the kinds of problems you're dealing with. Um, Furthest down uh, to my left, to your right, uh, is Chris Mottershead, who has a, a modest title of Distinguished Advisor uh, at BP. If I can uh, amplify on that, um, Chris has been at the absolute center of BP's thinking and rethinking about the issue of climate change and, and is now at the center of their thinking about the questions around energy security. And BP, as all of you know, in addition to being one of our sponsors, uh, BP has been uh, really at the lead, at the lead of the major uh, oil companies in, in thinking about uh, these kinds of these kinds of questions. Um, seated next to him is Brian Hannigan. Uh, Brian currently uh, is uh, is the head of all the environment programs at the Electric Power Research Institute, which is one of the most rapidly growing. I think maybe actually the most rapidly growing part of EPRI, um, EPRI, another sponsor of ours, and EPRI is the, cons the research arm of the electric power industry. So they've been thinking about uh, energy security questions in a very different kind of industrial, uh, industrial lens. Prior to that, Brian was chief of staff at the uh, Council on Environmental Quality, which is an arm of the White House that in this White House in particular has been at the very center of the environmental policy making process and notably on the issues uh, surrounding climate change, which must have been one of the toughest jobs on the planet. Not always successful. <laughs> um, so we're going to hear first from Chris, uh, and then we're going to hear from Brian, and then we're going to open it up for uh, discussion. Chris. Thank you. Um, I'm going to do, try and do three things. Um, I'm going to try and um, at least introduce some structure to what uh, energy security might mean. Um, rather than it, simply using it as sort of the, the label uh, bring what people seem to bring out to support their favorite project, uh, rather than actually it sort of being an articulation of some uh, fundamental broad social need. Uh, so I'm going to try and define, at least from my perspective, what I think it could mean. Uh, I'm then going to say something about why I think it's suddenly uh, become uh, the, 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 the topic that needs 
that every, you need to talk about wherever you go, uh, which is a change from even 18 months ago. Uh, and then something about, I'm going to try and do something impossible, as David just pointed out to me, but never mind. Uh, I'm going to try and uh, explain or, or road test a framework for how you might think about oil security in particular and the options that people have that hope, hopefully get everything on a, a more even uh, keel and, and something the way you can actually draw some comparisons rather than just sound as if you're promoting a single answer uh, to the exclusion of every other answer um, where there is e people equally think that they have legitimate answers as well. Anyway, so there are th three things. What does it mean? Uh, why has it suddenly become important? And then how might you talk about it in a sort of a more inclusive and analytical way? So I would say that um, any energy security actually means five different things. And, and you have to be clear about what five things are because your response to each of them can be very different. So the first thing is, well, is the resource available? Um, and you could say some of the issues at the moment are about whether people are worried about peak oil. And therefore, you need to absolutely address peak oil as a security issue. Second one is, is it accessible? So people are now concerned about sort of concentration in the Middle East and whether that is accessible. And that's a completely separate issue from whether the resource is available. And, and then you come to the third one, and, uh, which I would call sort of an investment lag. You know, the fact that supply and demand uh, isn't in sync normally and that the energy industry has this wonderful habit of going through these wild cycles, investment cycles, and the wild investment cycles drive wild uh, oil prices. Um, and that's probably been the issue and when people have talked about energy security over the last 20 or 30 years, that's largely what they've meant. And, you know, and, and the, the, the role of Saudi in carrying spare capacity to limit the, the extremes is probably what people have talked about. As well as my fourth one, which is just physical disruption, physical security disruption through war, terrorism or malicious acts, um, which has clearly driven... Uh, uh, some degree of concern about security, but as I'll come to in a moment, you know, I think that uh, often overplayed, the last 30 or 40 years have been a remarkable success, despite everybody's uh, arguments about why it wouldn't actually work. Um, and then fifthly, uh, reliability, by which I just mean straight engineering. Um, but, you know, Katrina demonstrated that, uh, you know, the pipelines um, in Texas didn't work after, after the, uh, an actual event, uh, and the systems can be quite close to the edge, as did uh, sort of the, the power failures in the Northeast, you know, in, infrastructure isn't quite as reliable. So, so they're my f five dimensions of energy security. Is the resource there? Can you get at it? Uh, is your investment cycle sufficient to actually sort of avoid the extremes? The fourth one is is physical disruption of access and, the, and then, uh, fifthly, reliability. Uh, and, I, I, and therefore, why has it become important today? Well, the first thing, despite what, you know, what a lot of magazine articles say, is um, I don't think it's really... The emergence of it as a real policy issue is not because uh, it's to do with the short-term disruptions uh, that have sort of been the, the focus for the last 30 years. Um, you know, the post-1973-74 creation of the IEA, AIEA and all those processes 
have clearly been a success since it's only been called on twice, once with Katrina and once in, 19, in, the, in the first Gulf War, and neither at material levels, given that the four billion barrels are, are, are stored. Uh, so, so actually, I don't think this is about short-term disruptions any more than it's been in the last 30 years, and, and I don't think, in a sense, uh, there needs to be something material. Clearly, as China becomes a, a larger consumer, then China needs to be included in that, in that process in a way that it's trying to, but high oil prices are sort of making it difficult for them to build um, a, a reserve base, but you know, it will get there. So that's not the issue. I think the real issue is that when people talk about energy security today, they actually mean there is a long-term strategic shift in where, in particular, transport fuels and, um, and the things that oil in particular are used for, and that's different from gas because there are absolute, there are today substitutes for gas, and you can have a conversation about whether it's nuclear level of renewables you want, but there is clearly a degree of substitution that doesn't exist in the transport sector. And, uh, and therefore, energy security, uh, while not exclusively, uh, sort of is, re is really an oil issue. Uh, and it's really an issue about my first two things. It's all, it is about uh, the, the, whether the resource actually exists and whether you can actually access it if it did exist. And then thirdly, uh, clearly there are environmental uh, overlay on top of that that says, well, actually, uh, there is need for a shift. Um, but then we need to be careful about what the, that shift is and whether we're re reacting to the right levels of change. So, you know, 80% of current primary energy comes from fossil fuels, 35% of, of that is oil, so it's a big issue. If you want to change your infrastructure over a, over a 30 or 40 year period, you, you have to be clear what, what you're doing and do it in a structured way. Now I come to peak oil, um, you know, the, the world has consumed one trillion barrels. There is one trillion barrels of, of proven reserves, and there's probably at least another trillion barrels of, of um, re reserves that we will access at some point of conventional oil. So, so if we're having an energy security conversation from an oil perspective, it's not because we're right at the edge. There's plenty of space. But, it's, but we're well along, you know, we're a third of the way along the consumption, so it's sort of a good time to have a conversation about um, what you would choose to start doing differently because you actually want to do it in a controlled way and build to somewhere different rather than have to react at the last minute, which would be an expected thing to do. So if you took the one trillion barrels of proven reserves then at today's consumption uh, production rates of around 86 million barrels a day, then that gives you 42 years of, of continued production. So what I'm now going to do is only focus on, on that trillion barrels of proven reserves, that 42 years of consumption at today's production rates. Of course, if you continue to grow consumption, then the 42 years comes back to something less than 30 years, depending on your growth rate. But, but I'm going to argue in a moment about how to think about this in at least a structured way. And at the moment, I'd just like you to carry with you that actually this is a, a, a date that says by t you've got enough oil, proven oil in the ground to get you to 2050 if you use what you currently have. And therefore, the question is, as you grow, what can you do in order to grow an alternative beyond that base level?
as just a way of thinking about the problem. What it's not, I don't think, is, is really a conversation about uh, sort of independence and energy independence. Uh, because I just think that's such a, you know, it's, the facts are just so uh, in the opposite direction. You know, at, at the moment, the US is 63% dependent on, on imported oil. And by 2030, that will grow to about 83. And that's broadly sort of similar numbers in the EU and also in China nowadays. So you're sort of going from around the sort of the mid 40% to the mid 50% to something up to 80 to 90% dependence on oil. So, you, so the, the world has been therefore dependent on imported oil for many decades, and it's, and it's survived that. And there's, I don't think there's any reason to su suggest anything other than that. And then people worry about, yes, but what that's done is because that's going to pull oil uh, resources increasingly out of the Middle East. Well, I don't think the facts actually stand up for that either, where, where if you took the IEA base, base case, then over the next 25 years, the concentration of oil, of the, of oil goes from 40% to 44% over the next 25 years. That's, you know, in conventional oil. That's not what the facts say. So if we're doing this, actually what we're doing it for is because we're preparing for a different world, whether that be because of environmental constraints or because of, or because of uh, oil constraint. And, and therefore, this is really a resource problem, either because it's a resource getting out of the ground or because the consequences of the pollutants we put into the, uh, you know, the, 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 the environment is resource constrained and it's a capacity to just to accept that. So now I'm going to do what David said uh, it will be totally impossible. So he's going to probably be right, but anyone going to try. Uh, I'm going to borrow for those of pe people who know it, the sort of the, the Pakala Sokolo story about climate, which was, you know, if you hold your emissions flat, then what do you need to do in order to build some options above that uh, in order to, to actually meet your continued economic growth. So I'm going to try and do the same thing now for oil. So if you hold oil flat at the 86 million barrels a day, and I'm not saying this is BP policy, I'm just creating a framework in which you can have the conversation that gets everything sort of equally on the table. And if oil demand continues at the rate it has done over the last uh, 30 years, which is averages about 1.2% per annum, slightly higher in recent years, but over the last 30 years is 1.2. Then by 2050, the world will be consuming about 156 million barrels a day. That's 70 million barrels a day more than today. So, so what I'm trying to do is frame the question in, in, yes, there's lots of oil if we continue to use it in the way that we've done, so just hold it flat at 86 million barrels a day. But because I've got continued growth, then I've got this wedge that grows over the next 42 years to 2050, which in 2050 will mean I need an extra 70 million barrels a day. And where can that 70 million barrels a day come from? And in the spirit of the, the, sort of the Sokolo-Pakala wedges for climate, then I did exactly the same thing and said, well, actually, break it into sevens because actually you need material businesses here or people don't get interesting. But equally, what you don't want to do is to have policy promoting uh, vested interests but have no real substantial contribution to make to the problem. So just break that 70 million to where I need to create in 2050 seven different ways of producing 10 million barrels a day. And what could they be? 
And it's just a way of sort of structuring it. And if you do that in the same way as they did for climate, you sort of come with this rather surprising result, uh, is that there are actually 14 different technologies, for want of a better word, that you can do this that get you to at least one of those wedges. And, and go back to you only need seven of these. And there are 14, and many, many of these can actually deliver more than one if you chose to. What's interesting is, just like the climate wedges, none of them get you to being even the dominant way of doing it. So anybody who thinks they're only going to solve this by biofuels or they're going to solve it only by oil shales or heavy oil or anything else, it's not true. You need, you know, it's going to be some combination of these 14, but fortunately there are 14, so we have some, some degree of market competition. We can drive into it if we do it in the right way. So, so I'm, I'm not going to go through the whole 14, but I'll give you sort of one or two, and perhaps remove one or two that people might sort of talk about but aren't real. Um, so you can get to one or two simply by energy efficient, uh, by engine efficiency. So you can reduce oil demand by 10 or 20 million barrels a day by 2050 just by driving in, into, driving in, sorry, I didn't mean the pun, but you know, by implementing technology that is perfectly feasible into, into conventional combustion engines over the next 42 years going from sort of a global average of 30 miles per gallon to 60 miles per gallon. Alternatively, you could do it by reducing demand, reducing the miles traveled, which gets you to sort of broadly the same place. You can do it by sort of backing out oil use in buildings, which gives you about one wedge, so that's another 10 million barrels a day. You could back, use it by backing out oil use in industry, which gives you another 10 million barrels a day. What you can't do is, is get it by backing it out of, out of power, because actually there's only six million barrels a day today, so you know, it's, it's difficult to back it out. That was backed out as a consequence of the 70s oil shock. Um, you uh, perhaps another surprising one is it's difficult to get it from Arctic reserves, because most Arctic reserves are gas. Uh, and while you get somewhere there, it's actually rather difficult. You will get it from, from heavy oils, whether it's sort of tar sands or, or the heavy oil in Venezuela, that's easily. You, you can uh, probably most get one of these wedges, and you need seven of them, uh, from coal to liquids. Um, it is really unlikely you're ever going to get one from gas to liquids. Um, so, so out of my 14, it was the gas to liquids one that I actually think doesn't really work at all. Um, and you, can, you will get it from deep water. You come to the contentious biofuels, and, and, and you know, if you went to the IEA energy technology perspectives thing, and, and, you, and you believe that lignocellulosic processes will come, so this isn't a competition for food, then, then they said you could get up to about 30 million barrels a day, so that's three wedges, and actually that was the largest single uh, contribution. Uh, so, so it's either one wedge, there's a couple that you can get two, from which is engine efficiency, and the only one you get three sevenths of the wave you, you need to there is by biofuels, but only really if you develop cellulose, cellulosic technology, and that can give you about 30 million barrels a day. Uh, and I offer that just as a, a sort of a structure because what it does is scale a problem, it demonstrates that the technology 
uh, either exists or demonstrates where you do need to focus uh, sort of people's attention. But more importantly, it also removes all those things that people would like to talk about but actually have no real contribution to make in, in actually solving the problem. Excellent. Sure, thank Chris, thank you so much for covering such a wide territory. And I know when we get to the Q&A part of this, um, Chris is keen to get feedback not only on the thinking about the large framework, but also um, some feedback on what does this mean for policy and how to think about some of the elements that might promote um, uh, energy security through policy. Brian, do you want to, do you want to switch? Um, actually, if you wouldn't mind toggling at the appropriate time, okay. I, I'm going to make say a few words, though, in, in, in response to, to Chris. Uh, because uh, he's absolutely right. I think when you think about mainstream dialogue, particularly in the U.S. around energy security, it's always about crude oil. Uh, it's about crude oil and to a lesser extent refined products, particularly when there's some sort of physical disruption uh, and some sort of infrastructure constraint. We don't talk about energy security too much on the power side except for things like tree limbs falling on transmission lines causing massive blackouts and such uh, or restoration of power to pump crude oil and refined products in the aftermath of Katrina. I'm not going to talk too much about the physical aspects of energy security, um, but I am going to touch on some of the other issues that uh, Chris did for the oil sector that I think are relevant to the electric sector. Um, we were all collectively at another meeting yesterday, and I asked the question of my two colleagues here, you know, would it be worthwhile to define something called an energy security index? Just as a, you know, we and we folks who either were in Washington or still in Washington are wonderfully fond of taking very complex, multi-dimensional problems and boiling them down into a single number, an index. And if the number goes up or down, then we sort of measure how well we're doing from a policy standpoint. So naturally, only being a refugee out of D.C. for about a year, I, I, I turned to the same approach. And I thought, what would be the ingredients of this kind of an index? So I thought about it in, in as far as the following five things. The first is your total consumption. Um, if you're consuming more units of energy per GDP, then that would be you know, one measure of which you'd be more energy insecure to a disruption, be it a price impact or a physical impact. You see that measured today by how the American public, by and large, ought to be you know, screaming bloody murder with gas prices at 350 a gallon. Um, and if you believed the economic analysis of 10 years ago, this would have caused revolts in the streets. Yet, because we spend less of our personal income today on gasoline, it's not having as much of an economic effect. The Dow Jones is still going up. The economy is still growing. So that exposure element is one thing that I would encourage capture. The second is the most commonly held, the import dependence. How much of it are you getting from somebody else that's not under your control directly? Um, and, and aligned to that is the third, which is the diversity of supply. We say, well, it's okay to import a fair amount as long as it's from safe sources that we know we can trust and so on. So look at your number of sources and, and, and so on. And a, a fourth, which I would relate to that, is then the uh, stability of that supply. You can have a diverse set of suppliers, but if they're all politically unstable or uh, prone to disruptions at a, at a whim of a government, government leader or so on, you would want to, to you know, obviously discount that. And then the fifth, as Chris pointed out in his comments, which we're blessed with, at least for now in the electric sector, is the ability for substitution. Uh, in transport, 
if you don't have any of the 14 wedges that he described, you really don't have much of an ability for substitution. In electric, you do have some ability for substitution, although I'll talk a bit about how that might be constrained going forward under a, uh, a carbon constraint. And then certainly you look at the other major economic sectors for heavy industries, for, uh, for residential and commercial and so on. You'd want to calculate this kind of an index separately for each of these sectors and then sort of weight it by their share of the overall GDP. So that what you get is some sort of weighted number to capture also the mix between service economies and heavy industry and so on. But you could at first approximation come up with a bit of an apples to apples comparison. And I'm not by any means saying that I would venture this is complete. But at least you have a uniform framework for saying what in the devil is energy security and what does it mean at the level of a, of a nation. Um, What's interesting is when you boil that down into the electric sector, you get what I'm going to talk about now, which is an overlay between climate policy and decisions that you might take for environmental effect and inadvertently creating problems, particularly when it comes to substitution, uh, import dependence, and stability of supply that aren't problems now for the electric sector, but may well certainly be if we're not careful. And so if I could call on David to advance the next slide. Uh, we've done some recent work at EPRI which has come up with four key points. And that is that number one, the electric sector can certainly reduce its CO2 emissions over the next several decades with a concerted effort not unlike the kind that, that uh, Chris just described for the oil sector to hold its use constant. Uh, we also see that there's no technology that's a silver bullet and I'll get to that in a moment. You need to push all of them forward as fast as you can and even then it's probably not enough to meet the political demand for carbon reductions going forward. And that much of these tools aren't yet developed like lignocellulosic technologies for biofuels. They're a glimmer in the R&D lab in somebody's eye and not yet ready for commercial prime time. And so substantial R&D and demonstration is required. The fourth point though, and the reason that the electric industry is very excited at this prospect, is if you add these tools of, of technologies that create low carbon and low cost electricity to the economy, then to meet a given carbon constraint, whatever that is, you're cutting the cost of the economy of meeting that constraint by anywhere from a half to two thirds. And I'll show you some economic analysis in a moment. Um, this is the wedges in reverse, uh, whereas uh, uh, Pakal and Sokolow, and now Mottershead, uh, have taken the wedges from a top-down analysis to say, what would it take in each of these technology areas to achieve a certain desired goal? We actually came about it the other direction, which is we said, let's take the baseline of emissions from the U.S. electric sectors reflected in the U.S. Uh, Energy Information Administration's base case, and let's make reasonable but aggressive assumptions about how we would expect technologies to be deployed over the next 25 years. Let's take those and calculate the delta in CO2 emissions which might occur if we were successful at, in the case of the blue slice here, so as to not be confused with wedges, we call them slices. Um, we reduced load growth for electricity from a percent and a half per year down to 1.1% per year, which is consistent with the, the recent UN report talking about energy efficiency potential that just came out within the last week. Um, what would we get as a delta if we invested in 70 gigawatts, not 30, of renewables? Or we built 50 new nuclear power plants to displace the sort of generic energy mix uh, that is forecast over the next 25 years? And so on down the line. And you can see the orange there is the, much, is the larger contribution of deploying carbon capture and storage technology 
on every new commercial power plant, uh, coal-based power plant that comes online after 2020, presuming that we take the intervening time now to get the technologies right, to bring them down in their performance penalties and their cost, and that we get the regulations and the public acceptance right to incorporate storing millions of tons per year of CO2 underground instead of in the atmosphere. Um, the, the upshot of this is that there's significant potential. You can turn an increasing trend to a decreasing one and actually do quite well towards meeting many of the legislative targets that are being discussed domestically or internationally. Uh, I mentioned the key technology challenges as I went through the various slices there. I won't go into too much more detail, but these are the four things that we see you've got to get right if you're going to engage in large-scale decarbonization, first of the electric sector and then of the economy as a whole. Uh, the top two associated with a smarter electricity grid that is more heterogeneous and, and absorbs plug-in hybrid vehicles and distributed energy resources. It also allows for you as a consumer to moderate your demand uh, based on the price of electricity in the market at the time that you go to the thermostat so that you might decide to shift your washing machine load from midday when it's most expensive to off-peak when it's not and thereby also change the generation mix and achieve some CO2 savings there as well. Um, but that won't get you all the way. You do need to invest in advanced light water reactor technology for new nuclear plants, extend the life of existing ones, and as I mentioned, you've got to crack the nut of the challenge with regards to CCS. The real value... So CCS is carbon capture. Carbon and capture and storage, so correct. Taking the CO2 emissions from the power plant and burying it underground. Correct. Where hopefully uh, it stays. Where hopefully it stays, but that's not yet proven. The real value of, of achieving those four technology options is, is illustrated in the following. If we were to suppose that the U.S. and the other so-called Annex One or industrialized nations uh, adopted one of the following emissions constraints, and in particular uh, this policy scenario B, which is right in the middle, it flattens emissions out uh, from the entire U.S. economy uh, over the period from 2010 to 2020, and then uh, decreases them at a rather substantial rate, at 3% per year. What that gets you mapped onto the electric sector is a constraint that's not unlike the ability of the electric sector to meet such a goal as I illustrated in the what we call the prism, the accumulation of those slices uh, that, that is the, the, the counter to, to the wedges. Um, what I want to do is illustrate the value of achieving that technology or achieving that CO2 target in a world that is absent technology improvements versus a world which contains those technology improvements, and in particular, the smart grid, expanded nuclear energy, and carbon capture and storage. Go ahead. So we run a macroeconomic model. We apply the emissions constraint to the economy, and the economy of the U.S. and the other industrialized nations responds by finding the lowest cost way to reduce carbon dioxide and other greenhouse gases amongst the various opportunities that it has to do so. And as a result, the U.S. electric sector responds on the left-hand side, in a case absent technology, by moving primarily to gas, natural gas. That's that increasing orange area there on the left-hand chart. It also responds by using less electricity. That's the cross-hatched area at the top which represents the amount of electricity that's not used because the price of using that electricity is too expensive. Basically, consumers find another way to meet their need for energy services. And so as a result, there's not as much electricity bought and sold in the marketplace, there's not as much of a need for generation and use of fossil fuels, and as a result, there's not as much need for CO2. On the right-hand side, you see the case where the technologies come to fruition, 
And instead of a reliance on natural gas, which I'll say more about in a moment, you see a reliance on coal with carbon capture and storage in that light blue area, and an expansion in the nuclear fleet in the gray. And as a result, your reliance on gas is much less, and also your response to, uh, through demand to reducing your electricity use is also a lot less because the price of using these technologies with research and development and deployment is substantially less. And in fact, if I get my colleague here to hit the button twice, the price difference for electricity delivered at wholesale is dramatically different in the two cases. Two and a half times the present value on average in a case without technology and only 50% above the present value on average in the, in the full case where we have those technologies reflecting the additional expenditures for the research and development. For the purposes of energy security though, it's important to look at how natural gas markets might respond. And this chart shows on the left hand side in a case absent technology an increasing demand for natural gas not just by the electric sector but by the entire economy as a whole. Uh, as industries turn to natural gas to reduce their carbon emissions, as absent things like plug-in hybrid vehicles and absent assumptions about biofuels, even the transport sector looks to natural gas as a lower carbon fuel. Uh, you see a dramatic increase in the consumption. You also see a dramatic in increase in the price, as shown by the red trace there. Alternatively, in the case absent technology, or with technology, you see a decrease in the overall use of gas in the electric sector and also in the broader economy as a whole, the sum of the lighter and the darker blue uh, chart uh, uh, bars here. And in fact, one can envision a world where much of the domestic requirements for natural gas, about 5 trillion cubic feet of gas consumption in 2050, can actually be met through domestic production and the reliance on imports of natural gas increasingly from places that might be suspect as to their stability uh, is not as much of a, of a case in the, in, the, in the full portfolio with technologies as opposed to a world in which we're heavily dependent on gas for our climate needs. Uh, so adding in the increased price for electricity and the increased price and exposure to natural gas prices in a world without investments in electricity technologies, you not surprisingly have a bigger impact on the economy. In the middle case, policy scenario B, which I've been showing the results from, the cost of the gross domestic product of the United States taken over the next half century is about 1.5%, or about $1.5 trillion when you factor in discounts and cost of inflation and so on you can cut that from $1.5 trillion to half a trillion dollars by a concerted effort to deploy these new low-carbon and low-cost technologies that provide energy services in a way that's absent greenhouse gases, but also absent the price increases that you would get by relying heavily on gas to get to this level of reduction, which is on par with the kinds of things that are being discussed internationally. And as you can see, that holds up regardless of what your carbon target is. Technology in any case will always help you reduce the cost of meeting a CO2 policy, but only if that technology arrives before you apply the constraint. If you do it the other way around, then what you get is a high cost and actually not a whole lot of emissions abatement, which one would argue is not really what we're trying to accomplish. So the key points from the economic analysis and the reason why I'm describing this in an energy security context is absent investments in these electricity technologies my sector will have no choice but to turn to natural gas. Uh, there may be some other reasons why we do that anyway, because many of these technologies are capital intensive 
And in a world of increasing competition, it's very hard to raise the billions of dollars that you need to build a new coal plant or to build a new nuclear plant, even before you get to concerns from regulators or communities about whether it's advisable to do so. But if we rely heavily on natural gas, that raises a significant number of questions for energy security. It also raises the question as, as to whether we'll even build enough LNG receiving terminals or engage in the necessary exploration and production in places that are so far walled off as to whether uh, we would ever meet that demand. Alternatively, uh, with growth in advanced electricity technologies, you rely more on domestic coal and increasingly on nuclear, which one can argue is either domestic or not, depending on whether, where the sources of uranium fuel come from. Uh, and certainly with reprocessing as a potential opportunity, uh, one might mitigate your need for imports of uranium in that regard. But by and large, that approach is a reduced cost to the economy and perhaps a reduced uh, risk from the standpoint of energy security. So let me stop there. Um, it's not quite on the minds of our executives as much as it is on Chris's executives, uh, but it's there nonetheless. And one of our maxims is, you know, OPEC came about at a time where we really didn't reasonably anticipate that. But now we can see another possibility for both natural gas and perhaps even coal. If we look at a globalizing coal market going forward, we have the ability to see that and head that off now if we make some smart choices about our technology investments. Well, Brian, thank you very much. And I think that's very much the point, which is that in this country especially, people have thought about energy security question as an oil question. And increasingly, it's really on the minds of executives across the energy business. We have a, a lot of time for Q&A, and I, I, and I want to just start with one question to each of you and then put it open. All of you, the rest of you should ready your questions. Um, so first to, to Chris, when you're talking about these wedges, you're, the, the, the frame is to think about uh, additional volumes that can be brought on or volumes that aren't needed because of um, uh, changes in demand. And what is your thinking about the role of the markets and um, all the resiliency um, uh, and flexibility that comes from better performing markets. How should we think about comparing um, those kinds of options with, the, if you like, the physical option of reducing or increasing the volume of oil um, demanded? For example, you know, there's been this big change over the last 15 years or so in the way the futures markets operate. Um, some countries have invested very heavily in strategic oil reserves, as you mentioned, the uh, IEA system for dealing with that. H how valuable are those in, alongside these other kinds of wedges? So I, I think the um, um, I think the, what Brian just explained is um, incredibly valuable because it actually demonstrates what the real choices are and where you what the consequences of taking policy actions are. So, so in particular, you know, if you had to summarize, it was um, early consistent action in order to promote technology will get you to where you necessarily need to be in a, in a way that actually you get to where you want to be and at much lower cost. Uh, and I think that's, uh, and I think that's um, tremendous. Um, from our perspective, uh, we're, we're uncomfortable if you take it to the next step and say, and therefore that's a, a projection of the way the world needs to, to, to actually evolve. So we would never, so, so, so I think it's incredibly valuable because actually it demonstrates in a real way why action today and building those alternatives is a sensible economic thing to do. 
the step about then taking it to being a roadmap is the bit where we get uncomfortable and we never predict oil price. I mean, we have no idea what the oil price is tomorrow morning. And if we did, we'd all go away and retire having made a fortune overnight. Uh, and we think it's a dangerous thing to do. So, so I think that our view is that what you need to do is lay out what the options are so that you can see that there is no silver bullet, that, that, that actually you do need a certain level of materiality if you're going to do that, and that the policy then needs to clearly demonstrate that it's actually treating these things equally. But the outcome will be what the market determines. Uh, and absolutely, you have to stop sort of governments in any way picking winners. Um, and therefore, the construction of policy then needs to be something that is deeply grounded in sort of economic wealth creation uh, and, and sort of rent-seeking rather than, than some sort of, um, as a physicist, sort of a physicist's answer of, of here is an answer and, and now we're going to go away and build this chart because it seems like the optimal one. And, and I think we were in broad agreement earlier where, um, in a sense, for example, um, some of the difficulties. Today, you'd have to say, well, actually, most of the economic models are what they're actually doing is sort of optimizing a, a sort of a, a rounded economic cost. But actually, that might not be the economic constraint. The economic constraint might actually be the capital intensity, because about everything that we talked about has, a, has, a, has an, a capital intensity that is way beyond what we currently are doing. And therefore, you know, the, the decision about whether you put in a gas plant or a nuclear plant is probably as much determined by your access to the capital, which could be, at the moment, as much as five- or six-fold difference in price per sort of kilowatt. So, you know, you could build a, a gas plant for six or seven, six or $700 per kilowatt, whereas there are numbers circulating for nuclear plants at the moment that are sort of three, four, or even five thousand dollars a kilowatt uh, and therefore your access to the money irrespective of what the price of the electricity is might shape the nature of the question so I think you really need to leave it to the market and policy therefore needs to be how it actually provides the incentives and the disincentives into the market so a question for you Brian about this issue of, of gas and the market I've always been very uncomfortable um, thinking about energy security as whether the fuel is imported, because it seems like a very large number of our energy problems happen right here at home. Mm -hmm. you, you know, Katrina happened, uh, I guess we imported the hurricane to some degree, but after that we caused their, our own trouble. Uh, the August blackout of mm -hmm. 2003, I guess it was, um, was caused by our own failure to cut trees, trees and talk to people on the phone and do things like that. Um, and yet, the scenario you're painting here is exactly this rise in dependence on imports, notably of natural gas. Mm -hmm. So there are these different projections that today, with four or five percent of our gas comes from someplace other than Canada and the United States as LNG, liquefied natural gas. Some people think it's going to be 15 or 20 percent uh, over the next uh, decade, two decades. To what degree is this on the minds of, of people in the electricity business, and how are they? How are they explaining to their constituencies whether this is a new security risk or not a new security risk to become so dependent on imports of natural gas? Well, they're, they're really not, David. I, I think because the level of imports of natural gas at present is at such a small level, and even under the most aggressive forecast, it's only rising into the mid-teens as a total percentage of supply, I, I don't 
this is certainly not the number one issue that utility executives talk about when they go out and they talk with their publics. It's usually air pollution, it's usually mercury deposition to fish, it's usually uh, a whole host of other things before you get down the list. And uh, even when it's talked about as a security issue, it's talked as one of economic risk, not so much a physical risk. I, I, well, because gas is so expensive. Yeah, because gas expensive. is so expensive and it will pass through to the ratepayer in terms of their, or the customer in terms of their electricity bills. Uh, there's a bit of a, how shall I say it, a disconnect between um, our uh, wonderful belief in the power of markets to optimize all things and to create lowest cost opportunities and so on, and particularly when you think about where the U.S. is on globalization. We have this globalization instinct on the one hand, but then we have this isolation instinct on the other when it comes to talking about import dependence on fuel. Um, and it, it permeates at even the highest levels of government. I know this from my own experience. Um, and it's very difficult to disentangle. And when you get out into the, the utility industry and you talk about the risk of energy security, it's more manifest as a risk that the cost of my fuel might be controlled by someone else. Mm -hmm. that no matter what procurement decisions I make, I will always have choices dictated to me and ultimately to the people that I still in many cases have to serve because these utilities have this, you know, uh, the, this obligation from their days as the controlled monopolies. Um, so you run the risk of putting yourself in a situation not unlike what happened to the utilities in California during the crunch mm -hmm. in 2000, where you're actually buying fuel and generating power at a price that's much higher than you're able to sell it to your consumers. And as a result, the value of your stock plummets, your profitability turns into losses, and, and you, you run an economic risk of, of running your, your, your company into the ground. Um, and that's what I think scares people. Not the physical issues or the geopolitical issues, but the economic issues that they're placing their future operations in the hands of someone else. Mm -hmm. oh, thank you very much. I'd like to ask the first. The preceding program was brought to you by Stanford on iTunes U and is copyrighted by the Board of Trustees of the Leland Stanford Junior University. Please visit us at itunes.stanford.edu.